Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Once again, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Again, God's holy word, Hebrews chapter 7, the first 10 verses, God's word. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed, them, blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is, inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us pray. So if you opened your photo album on your phone, how many pictures do you have? Well, most likely hundreds, if not thousands, for we're rather obsessed nowadays with taking pictures. We snap pics of just about anything, our pets, our food, skin rashes, and who knows what else. Indeed, for some, especially younger kids, if you don't take a picture, then it didn't happen. And yet, as you scroll through your album, you may notice how limited or narrow is a single photo. That is, a picture rarely tells the whole story, but it's merely a slice from a very distinct perspective. It's kind of like when someone sees a picture of you and they say, oh, you look so happy. And you respond, I felt horrible that day. Or the family photo on the back of a self-help book that makes the author appear like he has an ideal family, but in actuality they're quite dysfunctional. Yeah, by lighting, by angle, and by photoshopping, you can make a picture represent anything. Now, this can be deceptive, or it can just be focused on a particular purpose. Well, the Bible is a book that is devoid of pictures. It doesn't have sketches or diagrams, but what it lacks in photos, it more than makes up for with its vivid and scenic words, metaphors, and stories. A good picture might be worth a thousand words, but a biblical metaphor can fill an entire album with mental images. Thus, Hebrews sets before us an Old Testament story that pictures in full color the superior glory of our Savior. So as you'll remember from the end of chapter 6, the author drenched our hearts with a double shot of comfort as he encouraged us that our sure hope 
is our steadfast anchor. And yet the anchor of our souls against the storms of life is not sunk in the deep seas, but it's firmly hooked in heaven. Yes, your safeguarding anchor is welded to the very throne of God above, where Christ himself went before us behind the veil. Jesus entered that heavenly sanctum for your salvation, and Jesus is your anchor who is slowly reeling you in towards himself. However, this work of Christ behind the curtain, he did as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But who is this Melchizedek figure? What kind of priesthood belongs to the Melchizedekian order? What is the significance that Jesus had the credentials of Melchizedek? Well, this is precisely what the author wants to dig into. Thus, he takes the time to tease out for us the wonders and mysterious mysteries of Melchizedek, who his friends just called Mel. And for this personal expose, expose on Melchizedek, we are transported back to Genesis 14. As you might know, Mel only makes two cameos in the entire Old Testament, one in Psalm 110 and the other in this chapter in Genesis. And first up, we learn that Mel is a king, the king of Salem. Now, from what we know, Salem is the archaic name for Jerusalem. Long before David made Jerusalem his capital, the city was called Salem. Next, this royal figure also is a priest of the Most High God, which is a title for the Supreme God. It's one of the titles of Yahweh, the one and only God of heaven and earth. Thus, Mel is a worshiper and a priest of the Lord. Even though, as far as we know, Mel has no relation to Abraham, Mel is not a Hebrew, but he's a stranger to the covenant community, and yet somehow the true worship of the one God was preserved in Mel and his local kingdom. This, though, grants Mel a double office. He wears two hats of king and priest. Now, the dual office of a king-priest is known among some of Israel's neighbors, like among the Hittites or the Assyrians. But under the Mosaic kingdom, such a combo office was actually strictly forbidden. Now, for a brief time, Moses performed both the royal and the priestly function, but Moses quickly divorced these two offices and passed them off never to touch. Thus, under the law, the priest could not reach for the throne, and the king usurped the altar upon pain of death. The royal priesthood of Melchizedek, then, is something that is outside of, above and beyond, what is provided for in the law. He is a special case. Next, though, the historical setting for Mel is when he came out to congratulate Abram for his victory in battle. Mel blessed Abram, and Abram paid Mel a tenth of all the spoils of war. Yet what is exactly this post-war meeting? Well, simply put, this is the making of an alliance. It's a creating of a treaty or a covenant. Mel is a king-priest of a local city-state. Abraham leads a nomadic tribe that just defeated a half-dozen or kings or more. So Mel makes a treaty with the victorious Abram 
and Abram pays him tribute. As we read, the king of Sodom tried to make the same alliance with Abram, but Abram wouldn't even think to be yoked with such a wicked monarch. But he did so with Melchizedek. Moreover, the blessing means that Mel is the superior in this alliance. He's the Lord. While to pay tithe, a tithe, is to pay tribute, Abraham's the servant. Abraham promises to serve Mel, and Mel swears to be the protector and benefactor of Abram. By paying 10%, Abram bends the knee to Mel in fealty. It's him recognizing Melchizedek as his superior. Next, though, we're told that Melchizedek's name translates as king of righteousness. Now, in actuality, Melchizedek is most likely not a personal name, but a royal title. Either way, Mel is enthroned as the king of righteousness. And such an adopted title was not uncommon in the ancient world. We know of at least two Phoenician kings who took the same title. Yet the force of this honorific title means that the king was the righteous heir who performed righteousness for the good of his people and kingdom. Righteousness both modified the king and expressed what he did for his subjects. Thus, within Israel, the ideal son of David possessed the virtue of righteousness. In Isaiah 9, the royal son to be born would be crowned with justice and righteousness. In Jeremiah 23, the branch of David would take the name Yahweh is our righteousness. Messianic robes are draped over Melchizedek as the king of righteousness. And the same goes for his other royal title. Salem is a variant for the word for peace. Thus, to sit on the throne of Salem makes Mel the king of peace. And peace and righteousness have quite the intimate relationship in the Old Testament. As Isaiah says, the fruit of righteousness is peace. In Psalm 72, under the Davidic king, righteousness flourishes so that peace may abound. Moreover, when God's glory dwells in the land, righteousness and peace kiss. Thus, when the king rules in righteousness, when he imparts righteousness to his people, then peace and security covers the land like the morning dew. In the kingdom of God, there can be no peace without righteousness. And so as the righteous regent, peace shone like a star in the kingdom of Salem. Surely then, the resume of Mel glitters like gold. And there's more. This ancient figure is also without father, motherless, and absent of genealogy. With three rapid-fire denials, Hebrews paints Mel as having no father, no mother, and no genealogy. Yet these descriptors at first strike us as jarring and troubling. For these terms are normally used in order to shame A bastard is one without a father. Unwanted orphans have no mommy to hold them. And no genealogy in the ancient world spelled that you were a nobody below the lowest class of people. 
Furthermore, such negatives are the very opposite of a priest. Priests, especially under the Mosaic Covenant, were all about genealogy. In order to be a Levitical priest, you had to have an unblemished family tree going all the way back to Aaron. In Ezra, after the exile, some men claimed to be priests, but their names were not found in the Aaronic genealogy, and they were barred from the priesthood. There is no way a bastard orphan can be a priest. And yet the author is employing these offensive terms with a different sense. Instead, these describe Mel as he's pictured in the text of Genesis 14. As we read, Mel appears out of the blue with no family info given for him. Genesis pictures Mel as having no family. And so with this next line about Mel, he has no beginning and no end. There's no birth certificate recorded for Mel, no tombstone set up for him, no obituary published for him. Therefore, Hebrews is describing Melchizedek not so much as a historical person, but as he's portrayed in Holy Scripture. And this comes out explicitly in the next line, which says, having been made to resemble the Son of God. That is, Genesis 14 snaps a picture of Mel at just the right angle so that he will look like the Son of God. This means that Melchizedek was a normal individual of history who actually did have parents, and he did die at some point. Yet the text of Scripture leaves all this info out in order to dress Mel up as a foreshadowing of the Son of God. In fact, this is actually how nearly all Old Testament types of Jesus work. For example, when David pictures Jesus, there's always a bunch of ways that David is not like Christ. But in some narrow or limited way, David can resemble Jesus. Hence, being motherless, having no beginning and no end, these attributes were also used by the Greeks to speak of the gods. Yes, the Greeks and Romans spoke of true divinity as having no mother nor no father. A real God possessed no origin and lived off, lived on without end. So devoid of a genealogy and being pictured as immortal, Mel resembles the Son of God. At this point, Mel doesn't picture the human nature of Jesus, who was born of Mary, and who had a genealogy going back to David. Rather, he portrays the eternal divinity of the Son. The mysterious aura hovering around Melchizedek in Genesis 14, this is a deliberate picture so that Melchizedek can showcase the divinity of the Son of God. As a king of Salem, Mel is a man, but having no start or finish, Mel resembles God. In a single Old Testament type, the two natures of Christ are signified, fully God, fully man, one Christ. And being pictured as immortal, Mel continues on as a priest without interruption. As you might know, high priest didn't retire in the Old Testament. You were a priest until you died. 
Well, if Mel is painted as never dying, then his priesthood extends without end. Melchizedek testifies then to a priesthood that is eternal. And a forever priest is always better than a temporary one. And this puts the finishing touches on the typological picture of Melchizedek. Though with this da Vinci picture of Melchizedek front and center before us, now the author draws out more meaning. As he says next, with great exuberance, he says, see how great this man was? It's as if the author is standing in the Louvre before some masterpiece and he's in awe. All he can do is point and marvel at the greatness before him. Yet, as the measure of Mel's splendor, the author doesn't just repeat his kingship, priesthood, or how he pictured the divine son. Rather, he cites Abram's tithe. The brightest jewel in Mel's crown is Abram's payment of 10%. But why? Well, first, because Abram is the patriarch. In the ancient world, greater honor always goes to the father, and Abraham is the father of fathers. He's the sire of all God's people. He's the progenitor of kings. In faith, Abraham is your real ancestor. All of our spiritual genealogies trace back to Abraham. Sure, David was awesome. Moses was outstanding. Jacob gave his name to Israel, but none of these greats stood taller than Abraham. Such dignity was placed upon Abraham that Yahweh revealed himself as the God of Abraham. When the patriarch Abraham is in the house, he bows to no man, and we all bow to him. And yet the honorable Abraham bent the knee to Melchizedek, and paid tribute. Abram acknowledged Mel as his better and Lord. When the patriarch, Abram, humbles himself, then you know you are in the presence of true greatness. Secondly, though, Mel's honor is showcased by the tithe of Abram. But what exactly is a tithe? What's the effect of giving 10% of all the spoils of war? Well, this is drilled down on next, and to do so, Hebrew shifts the spotlight to the Levitical priest under the law of Moses. For the Levites also collected tithes. They exacted 10% from their fellow Hebrews. But what was the effect and significance of this? Well, as you'll recall, the Levites did not inherit a plot of land within the promised land, Instead, their inheritance was to labor near God in the tabernacle. And so, as their wages, the people had to pay them the tithe. The tithe was the tribute unto the Lord, and it maintained the tabernacle and paid the tabernacle workers, the Levites and the priests. Thus, the tithe was collected by a commandment of the law. It was a mandatory moral obligation imposed on the people for the Levites. Remember that the tithe was essentially a tax. Sure, the people were to pay with gratitude and joy unto the Lord, but it was still a tax demanded for services rendered in the tabernacle. 
Likewise, this 10% tax was extracted from brothers, the Judeans, the Ephraimites, the Benjamites, those who paid up. These were brothers of the Levites. They also were descendants of Abraham. Yes, the career of the Levitical priest was holy. It was a higher calling. But the priest and the lay Israelites were equal. They had the same status under Abraham. Under Moses, the tithe then was a tax among brothers in order to support the sacred clergy for laboring in the tabernacle. And yet with Melchizedek, the tithe differed in significant ways. For one, Mel is not a descendant of Abraham. These two guys are not brothers from the same mother. Abraham wasn't paying his brother for a job well done. This means that the tithe was not a tax between equals, but it was tribute among unequals. There is a clear superior and inferior relationship here. Next, Abram gave his tithe not as a matter of law, but freely as a gift. He didn't have to pay Mel, just as he rejected paying tribute to the king of Sodom. Rather, Abram happily paid the tribute to make Mel his covenant partner and lord. In contrast to the Levites who taxed their brothers, Abraham freely paid tribute to one who was higher than him. And so in return, Mel blessed Abram. The priest-king of Salem bestowed the name and favor of God upon the patriarch. And it's axiomatic common sense that such a blessing only goes from the superior to the inferior. Only the one higher in status can grant a blessing to one of lower status. Now, blessing is a word that's used in different ways in Scripture. For example, in the Psalms, we are called to bless the name of the Lord. But the sense of blessing here merely means to praise. We, the servants or the children, are to praise our Father and Lord. Yet, when blessing means to give favor, this can only flow downstream from the greater to the lesser. By this tithe, by the tithe, Abraham bent his knee as the inferior, and by his blessing, Mel acknowledged to be Abram's better. And there is another difference between the Levitical tithe and Abram's. Under the law, the tithe went to mortal men. The Levitical priest lived and died just like all of us mortal humans. And yet, as was testified to by Scripture, Mel still lives. He had no birthday and no end of days. Now, Mel here is treated as he's presented as a type within the biblical text. This undying image of Mel and his perpetual priesthood signifies that he's not mortal. That Mel was adorned in the text with the garb of divinity. Thus, Abram lift tithes to, to one who symbolically resembled God, particularly the Son of God. Abram's tithe was not a payment to mortals for their daily bread, but it was a gift of loyalty and devotion to one who does not live off bread. The immortal always stands higher than the mortal. 
In fact, as he goes on, one could even say that Levi himself ties to Mel in the loins of Abraham. As you know, Levi was the great-grandson of Abraham. The DNA of Levi was in Abram when he gifted Mel. This then brings up the concept of fatherly representation. When a patriarch does something, he resemble, represents all his future generations. What our ancestors did, we did in them. Thus, for Abram to bend the knee and to tithe is for Levi to do the same. This means that within Abraham, the entire Levitical priesthood acknowledged a superior priesthood than itself. Abraham said to Mel, you are greater than I. And in Abraham, Levi also declared, Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to mine. And with this, the author puts the cherry on top of his argument. For at the present time, in the first century when this letter was written, there, is, there was no higher station among the Jews than the Aaronic priest. The genealogy of the priest went back over a thousand years. The hallowed office of priest was ordained at Sinai. The priest ruled in God's house of the temple. To disobey a priest was to rebel against God himself. The sacred vestments of the priest were given by God and were hundreds of years old. There was no higher earthly authority than the priest. Thus, to exalt yourself over Levitical priest was the epitome of wicked hubris. It was utter blasphemy. This was the offensive friction then when it came to Jesus. Some Judean born in Nazareth is greater than the Aaronic priest? No way. This steps on the moral and pious toes of every Hebrew. Jesus superior to the priest? This would have been met with derisive spitting and torn clothes. Thus, the author of Hebrews cuts this objection off at the knees. But he says Abraham himself acknowledged a higher priest. Within Abraham, the Aaronic priest paid tribute to a superior priesthood. Hence, this entire exposition on Melchizedek is all about Jesus Christ. The full anatomy of Mel displays the grandeur of the Son of God, our Lord. For us to study Melchizedek is for us to sit at the feet of Jesus and to learn about him. As Abraham bent the knee and tithed to Mel, he was humbling himself before Christ from afar. As Jesus said in the Gospel of John, Abraham saw the day of Jesus and rejoiced. And there is no clearer spot in Genesis where Abraham rejoiced in Christ than before Melchizedek. Thus, this introduction to Melchizedek is Holy Scripture saying to you, Welcome to your Savior. Indeed, who is your King of Righteousness? It's Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. For only Jesus obeyed the entire law perfectly to fulfill all righteousness for you. And Christ alone is your righteousness imputed to you through faith 
as a gift of grace. And what's the glorious harvest of Christ's righteousness? Is reconciliation for God, the peace of a purified conscience. Indeed, the peace that Jesus imparts is spiritually present with you. And it is the holy tranquility of heaven that endures forever. As is obvious from our turbulent and violent world, peace is a most precious commodity that is out of reach for mortal sinners. But in Christ, as a gift of God, the serenity and calm of God is yours now, spiritually, and yours forever as a gift of the Lord's love. Finally, who is your superior and everlasting priest who lives forever? It is Jesus. By his priesthood, atonement was made once and for all by the blood of Christ. And by his enduring life, Jesus never stops interceding for you. His blessing of you never ceases. Thus, as our father Abraham, so we should happily bend the knee before our king priest, Jesus Christ. Yes, in faith, we humble ourselves before Jesus in loyalty and love. And like Abraham, we give gifts of gratitude and thanksgiving. At the feet of Jesus, we joyfully offer up to him our worship. Our prayers, our praises, our devotions, our resources, our time, even our whole selves. So then let us give all the glory to God and to his Son, the King of peace and the King of righteousness, Jesus Christ himself. All praise be to him. Amen. Let's pray.